0: Sometimes studying the Bible can feel overwhelming and confusing. Grounded in Truth with Janet Dennison will help you learn to study, understand, and apply God's Word to your daily life. His Word is true. And guess what? It's for everyone. So thanks for joining us today as we dive into Scripture together.
1: Welcome to Lesson 7 of the study of the Book of Romans. Today we're going to look at Chapter 4, and there are 25 verses in Chapter 4. This chapter is about the Old Covenant faith, and you will notice in this week and next week that the Apostle Paul is going to begin to marry the Old Covenant with the New and intertwine them as only Paul can. And so I hope that you will pay close attention. At first glance, it may seem like this is not something we really even need to think about. It's not near the problem today that it was back in the first century. But I will explain to you, think past the issue to what the issues would be today, and you will find principles that Paul gives for determining how to develop a theology out of what we may have always heard was true but never really thought about why. And so when we study Paul's letter to Rome we have to remember that Paul was a theologian evangelist. He had a lot of experience explaining to people why, uh, as he went about his missionary journeys, why the old covenant was so important to the new. The Jewish people tended to think the old covenant still mattered just as much and in the same ways it always had. The Gentile population thought the new covenant was all that really mattered and had no real interest in Jewish history. It was very hard for those two groups of people to worship together and and think the same thoughts and be unified. Paul, coming from his background, was able to do that. And so, even though Paul had never been to Rome, he knew Rome. He had heard about their reputation, but not only that, he had dealt with these problems his entire ministry, and he was prepared to explain why the New Covenant and the Old Covenant were so important to combine together. Chapter 3 ended with Paul writing Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. Now, in chapter 4, Paul is going to prove that what he had just said in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 3, was truth. So, from past experiences, he wrote a phrase that would prove to the circumcised, which is another way of talking about the Jewish people, that he had been correct in verses 30 to 31, and that is Romans chapter 4. Paul's technique is brilliant, and the one he used throughout his ministry. He in some ways could have been a lawyer, you might say. He saw the whole big picture and learned how to weave a person's thinking to bring them to the point he wanted them to understand. It's a lesson for all of us today. Uh, Whenever you find yourself in an argument over theology or uh, someone wants you to defend your faith, the best way to do that is always to use the truth of God's word. I like to say, let them debate God rather than you. And that's why we're called to know Bible. No one was better trained in the scriptures, Old Testament and the new ways of thinking than Paul. So Paul defends his point, By saying, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Paul goes immediately to the father of the faith, Abraham, in Romans chapter 1. And he said, okay, let me prove my point beginning with Abraham. When Abram was 75 years old, God called him and told him to take his family to the land of Canaan. In Genesis 15, God promised Abram, Abraham was called Abram in Genesis 15, and Sarai, his wife, who would be called Sarah, God promised him that they would have a child. Several years after that, when Abram was 99, God promised him that he would soon have a son and that he would become the father of countless generations. And so then is when Abram was renamed Abraham, which means in Hebrew, father of a multitude. In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that he and every male among them should be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. The command was that every male, even the foreigners that were brought into the household, needed to be circumcised. And as with most arguments among God's people, there's usually a good reason why that person feels the way they do or thinks the way they do. Consider this verse that God spoke to Abraham. He told Abraham, my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That verse alone gives great understanding as to why the people would have heard Paul, the Jewish people in the church would have heard Paul say what he said and probably glanced at one another wondering, how can he say that? And so, Paul knew that he had to explain himself to the Jewish people. And to be honest, the Gentile people who were sitting in the Christian church especially the men, are starting to scorn right now. To hear that as the Old Testament, no wonder the Gentile people really didn't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament. But Paul knows he's got scripture, God's truth, God's revelation from the beginning of time that he needs to weave together and explain. That's what he does. He understood the depth of belief that was associated by some of the people in the pews about the old covenant laws. And for obvious reasons, circumcision was probably number one on that list for both Jew and Gentile. And so he uses Abraham to explain a truth that I am going to work really hard today to teach. Uh, So bear with me. Paul then writes, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, circumcision was a work, an act of obedience. He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? And then he says, scripture says a verse all of them would have known. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 2 and 3. Paul is quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham had not yet been circumcised when God said it was credited to him as righteousness. That wouldn't happen until Genesis 17, many years later. So Paul says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Bottom line, we don't work to gain righteousness because we can't. Paul's already said that. No, there's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't work for righteousness like as if we're doing a job that deserves wages from God, blessings from God. We can't be made righteous that way. The only way to be made righteous is a gift. Righteousness is credited by faith, not because we work for it, but because we believe in the promise. So next, Paul uses King David as his example. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That is a quote, not an exact quote, but an almost exact quote from Psalm 32. Paul's proof that circumcision was not necessary for righteousness is this. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, Paul says. And he goes on to say, And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised that's really important so i'm going to pause abraham was not circumcised until after god had given him the blessing the righteousness that he was credited therefore because he was credited as righteous before circumcision circumcision could not be necessary in order to be made righteous. Right now, all of the Gentiles in the pews are going, right? So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Paul says, so then, Abraham is the father, even of the uncircumcised. He's not just the father of the Jewish nation. He is the father of of even the uncircumcised. How is that? He is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, poor Tertius, he's trying to write all of this down. Paul is making sure we understand one of the most important premises he will make. And I'll explain it in a minute. That actually all makes really good sense. Abraham is the father of the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised. How is that? Unless we think this is a first century issue only, let me remind you that church history is a lesson in what Paul is teaching here. In our history of a church of a faith. There have been Christians that were burned at the stake. I mentioned William Tyndale in the introduction, who was burned at the stake because he translated the Bible into English from Latin, and the church burned him at the stake. Christians were drowned when they said they wanted to be baptized by immersion. We called that group the Anabaptists. The Baptists are born from that group. There were bylaws in the first church my husband and I ever pastored that said the preacher was required to use a King James Bible, as if the King James Version was the only version that could be the Word of God. My husband had to go buy a King James Version Bible to preach out of when we went there. And actually, just to throw this in, I teach out of the NIV for a reason. The NIV is a Bible that was put together from the best of records we had, uh, better records than was used to translate the King James Version. King James Version is published with some theology uh, built in through the way it's punctuated and emphasized. So there was some Anglican theology that was inserted into the King James Version. The NIV Study Bible is my favorite because every single book of the Bible was composed, written, the study notes were done by a person or persons that were experts in that book, in that chapter. And therefore, in many ways, I would say the ESV and the NIV are my favorite versions of Scripture to use to teach with because they are the closest to the original text. So that's an aside, but just so you can know, Jim had to preach out of the King James all the while knowing it wasn't really the best one for him to use. Christians were thought less deep in the last 20 years because they preferred a certain kind of worship music instead of the hymns. It doesn't stop. We as human beings always try to measure what is most spiritual sometimes. Uh, So lest we think it's a first century issue that we want our traditions and we aren't open to others, that's what existed in Paul's church. How did he defend it? With scripture. There are people that will say, we have to sing hymns, I can't sing a worship song. The next question is, tell me where in the Bible does it say that? Tell me where in the Bible it says that I need to use a King James Bible, a King James Version. In fact, if we want to be really strict, we should all be teaching in the original language. Only no one would come, right? Because they wouldn't understand the sermons. That's the point. That's what we're talking about here. As you argue for your faith and you uh, debate what is and what isn't, use Paul's method. Use scripture to back up what you believe. If you can't find scripture to back up what you believe, question what you believe. Now, asterisks. I like the hymns, too. I think they're important. I think the third stanza of the hymn, which was often left out because it's kind of sad and down sometimes, is some of the most important words we can use to worship God. And so I'm a big fan of the hymns. But will I ever sit in a room and say we have to sing those in order to truly worship God? No, I could not. Scripture would not allow me to say that. That's the point. So Paul goes on. He said it wasn't through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham became the father of many nations because he believed God was going to do what he said he was going to do. It was Abraham's faith in God, That brought about his righteousness. For if those who depend on the law, verse 14, are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. If you think you can depend on the letter of the law to save you, you'll miss salvation. Why? Because the law brings wrath. The law reminds us of who we are not. It doesn't help us be perfect. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, that's a hard one to understand. What Paul's saying is, without the law, you wouldn't know you were wrong. That's what the law was given to do. Therefore, and I love this passage, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Here's the key not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. I do not have Jewish blood in my veins, to my knowledge. But Abraham is my father in the faith. Why is that true? Because I Share Abraham's faith in God. He isn't our father by genetics. He is our father. We are unified with him as father through faith. He's the father of our faith. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father, Paul says, in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Oh, there's five sermons in verse 17. Paul made him the father of many nations, not because he was genetically their father, but because by faith he was their father. If we share the faith of Abraham, he is our father too. And what is that faith? It's described here, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was 99 years old. And since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, They were too old to have a baby, but they did. Yet he did not waver through unbelief, such an important part of Abraham's faith. He didn't believe God because it was scientifically logical. He believed God because God said so. He didn't waver in his unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded. Circle those words. Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why, Paul says, it was credited to him as righteousness. So after using a biblically sound argument, using Biblical history, reminding them he wasn't even circumcised when God told him he was righteous. Paul makes his point, and this is the point of the whole chapter. The words, Paul says, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul now jumps from Abraham to Jesus. Why do those two things go together? Here's Paul's point. Through faith, we believe in the impossible as well. Through faith, We believe God's word, and it's credited to us as righteousness. We are counted as saved because we believe God's message, God's gospel message of salvation. We believe in the impossible, just like Abraham did. Jesus, God's son, was born to a virgin, and we believe that. Jesus lived a sinless life. We believe that Jesus performed miracles. We believe that Jesus was crucified, buried and raised from the dead. We believe that through our faith, we believe what the Bible says is the truth and God credits it to us as righteousness. We are made right with God. Not because we walked an aisle, took classes, joined a church, learned how to pray, learned how to study, all good things, but understand it is credited to you as righteousness. You are saved because you believe Jesus is who he is revealed to be. In God's Word. You share faith, Abraham's faith, and your faith is what is credited to you as righteousness. That's why we are justified. That's why that when we stand before the Lord on the Day of Judgment, God's gonna look at Jesus and say, is this one been made innocent through their faith? And Jesus will look at his dad and say, yes, this one's mine. Understand why you're saved. Count on it. And realize that from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, one thing has always forever been true. People go to heaven because they believe the word of God and it's credited to them as righteousness. Later, Paul will say, those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. If you haven't entered into that belief in the impossible grace, goodness, and provision of God, then turn off your computer and tell the Lord you're ready. Tell him you know you're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. Tell him you know now you need him. And ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Give Him your heart. Step into the faith and become a child of God. I pray that for all of us. I'll see you next week. Hi, everyone. Thanks for
0: listening to the Grounded in Truth podcast. If you would like to receive our studies in your inbox each week, You can subscribe at foundationswithjanet.org. We would love to help you study God's Word. Each week, Janet talks about how to apply Scripture to your daily lives so that you can live a life that God is able to bless. We know you'll be encouraged as you build your life on the solid foundation of God's Word. Again, to subscribe, just go to foundationswithjanet.org. We'll see you there.